Hello Cooter fans, as you probably know, the Rye Cooter story is currently on hiatus until January 2024. To shorten the waiting time, we're bringing you a little extra today, a bonus episode about the collaboration between Arlo Guthrie and Rye Cooter. So let's go back and look at the 60s and 70s again from a different perspective. Have fun with it. Hello and welcome to The Rye Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to music, the movies and the career of slide guitar master Rye Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster and lifelong Rye Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. Today we're talking about the long collaboration between Rye Cooter and Arlo Guthrie, one of the greats of folk music. Cooter has played on several of Guthrie's albums, and they've toured together as well. So here we go. Rye Cooter and Arlo Guthrie had a lot in common, and yet they were very different. Both were born in 1947. Both discovered the guitar at an early age, but while Cooter always aspired to a career in music, Guthrie never really saw himself as a performer. For both, folk singer and songwriter Woody Guthrie was a formative figure. But with one major difference, for Rye Cooter, Woody Guthrie was a distant idol whose record spun on his parents' record player. To Arlo, however, Woody was a real person, but still mostly out of reach. For Arlo Guthrie was the fifth child of Woody Guthrie, America's legendary Dust Bowl troubadour. When Arlo was seven, Woody was diagnosed with Huntington's disease, an incurable illness. He was permanently hospitalized and Arlo rarely saw him as a child. He only learned his father's famous songs when the other kids sang them in sixth grade. Cooter was a child of the West Coast. He spent his entire youth in Santa Monica, which was, at least to him, a pretty boring place at the time. Guthrie was an East Coast kid. He grew up in Coney Island, surrounded by his father's friends like Cisco Houston and Pete Seeger. At 18, he wanted to be a forest ranger, but soon dropped out. It was after one fateful Thanksgiving, legend has it, that he stumbled into his show business career. At the time, Arlo was staying with two former staff members of his high school, Alice and Ray Brock, who had opened a restaurant in a former church in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. When Arlo and his friend Rick Robbins arrived for the festivities, the Brocks were cleaning up all sorts of debris from the church's main meeting hall. Arlo and Rick offered to haul away the trash, but unfortunately the dump in nearby Great Barrington was closed. So in their youthful recklessness, they just threw the garbage down a hill and got caught because an eyewitness called the police. The punishment, $25 each and a thorough cleanup of the pollution. In most cases, that would be the end of the story. But for Arlo, it was the beginning. Shortly thereafter, he was drafted into the Vietnam War, a service he was determined to refuse. But it wasn't his carefully crafted anti-war argument that saved his head. Ironically, he was deemed unfit because of his criminal record. As a convicted litterbug, he was no longer fit for military service. Mm -hmm. 
Went back to the church, had a huge Thanksgiving dinner that couldn't be beat. Went to sleep and didn't get up until the next day when we got a phone call from Officer Obi. He said, kid, we found your name on an envelope at the bottom of a half a ton of garbage. Just wanted to know if you knew anything about it. I said, yes, sir, Officer Obi, I cannot tell a lie. I put that envelope under that garbage. In the summer of 1967, Arlo performed Alice's Restaurant Massacre to 20,000 fans at the Newport Folk Festival. This caught the attention of Warner Brothers Records, who signed him and released Alice's Restaurant on their reprise label in September 1967, just weeks before Woody Guthrie's death on October 3. It became a huge hit and even spawned a movie, Alice's Restaurant, released in 1969, when Arlo also sang at the legendary Woodstock Music Festival. By this time, he had performed at a memorial concert for his father at New York's Carnegie Hall on January 20, 1968, where folk greats such as Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, and the band Judy Collins and Richie Havens paid tribute to Woody Guthrie. In between acts, Robert Ryan and Woody's lifelong friend, actor Will Gear, told stories about the late musician's life. Arlo also released a successful live album. Then he decided not to record his third album on the East Coast. There, he was still a little more than Woody Guthrie's son. Los Angeles was different. Los Angeles now was the capital of the rock and roll recording industry, with the hottest bands and the hippest session players. So in the spring of 1969, producers Van Dyke Parks and Lenny Waronker were in the studio to record Arlo's first West Coast album. It was to be called Running Down the Road. Parks told Rolling Stone magazine that they kept the tape rolling. Getting everything down we can. We will be recording steadily for the next several weeks. Then we'll go back and sort things out. The list of musicians assembled to lend their talents was promising. Clarence White, James Burton and Arlo's friend John Pilla were on guitars, with James Gordon on drums, Gene Parsons on drums and harmonica, Milt Holland on percussion, and Chris Etheridge and Jerry Sheff on bass. Ry Cooter was on mandolin and surprisingly also played bass, at least according to the album credits. The album was released in August of 1969, a very busy month for Arlo. Within a few weeks, he performed at Woodstock celebrated the premiere of the movie Alice's Restaurant and saw the release of Running Down the Road to Mostly Positive Reviews. His star was on the rise. The press especially praised the drug smuggling anthem coming into Los Angeles, which, not surprisingly, was one of the most celebrated songs at Woodstock. Rolling Stone magazine called it the best song he's written. It offered proof that Arlo could tell a story in a song instead of a half-hour rap while his guitar gently vamps. The album consists mostly of gentle folk rock ballads, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, and Mississippi John Hurt covers, plus a few Arlo originals. Cooter plays mandolin on four of the ten songs. He features prominently in Every Hand in the Land, written by Arlo. Every hand in the land, shake along with me. It don't seem that I can dream like I used to dream. Maybe that somebody is shaking me If I fell, I could tell Maybe that 
With Steelin, Arlo uses a blues classic from the 1920s in the best Ry Cooter manner. The song, written by Gus Cannon, is about a man who makes a fool of himself out of love. It was covered many times starting in the early 60s, including by the Grateful Dead. Arlo's version was later used in the 1971 film Tulane Blacktop. In the middle of the song, Cooter has a nice mandolin solo. With Running Down the Road, Guthrie had found his formula for success. In addition to the members of his own band, he continued to rely on top session players like Rye Cooter for his Warner Reprise albums. Of him, he later said, I guessed he probably made his reputation playing with us as much as anyone else. He was part of a crew that lasted a long time at Warner Brothers. Rye and myself and Randy Newman were the folks that Lenny Waronker liked working with. Lenny went on to become the president of Warner Brothers, and he stayed there a long time, until just recently. So it was the cream of the crop that we got to play with, and that was through his personal interest. Their next collaboration was Washington County, recorded in 1970 and released in late October of that year. The studio lineup included Ry Cooter, Chris Etheridge, Richie Hayward, Doug Dillard, Clarence White, and Hoyt Axton. It was another light and bright folk album with a soft infusion of country rock. This time, however, Cooter didn't feature as prominently as he had on Running Down the Road. However, he did play bottleneck guitar on the country ballad Fence Post Blues. Cooter's mandolin is featured on the banjo-driven instrumental Washington County. Then there's track seven, the hippie ballad of I Could Be Singing. It's about the new world coming together. Like most of the album, it was produced by Waronker. The album received mostly positive reviews. It peaked at number 33 on the Billboard charts in December 1970. Meanwhile, on September 12, 1970, both Arlo Guthrie and Ry Cooter contributed to the belated West Coast version of 1968's musical tribute to Woody Guthrie. 
At the Hollywood Bowl, they were part of a lineup that included Joan Baez, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Richie Havens, Country Joe McDonald, and Pete Seeger. Bob Dylan did not attend this time. Actors Will Gear and Peter Fonda of Easy Rider fame served as narrators. Arlo opened the night with This Train is Bound for Glory. This train is bound for glory, this train. This train is bound for glory, this train. This train is bound for glory. No matter nothing but the righteous and a holy The entire show was a highly improvised affair. All of the performers were on stage almost constantly, singing here, playing there, and some even needed slips of paper to read the lyrics. The Los Angeles Times wrote that there were some awkward moments when performers, hampered by the briefest of rehearsals, didn't know what song to sing next or which microphone to use. Watching the old footage in search of Rye Cooter is a strange affair. There is a large crowd of performers, but the musicians at the edge of the extremely wide stage are hardly ever captured by the cameras. This creates the paradoxical experience of constantly hearing Cooter, but almost never seeing him. This is the case with Oklahoma Hills, for example. Those Oklahoma Hills, where I was born. Many a page my life has turned, many lessons I have learned, and I feel like in Cooter and Guthrie also play together on Hobo's Lullaby, Do Re Mi and Jesus Christ. And if you look closely, you can spot Cooter at the very edge of the stage in one or two diagonal camera shots. He's wearing a dark pinstriped suit, maybe the same one we know from the Into the Purple Valley cover. And even though he probably had little influence on the stage design at the time, it seems that he was quite content to stay out of the limelight. Like many years later at the famous Buena Vista Social Club concerts, he does shape the sound, but otherwise prefers to stay in the background. About the importance of Woody Guthrie for himself, Cooter told John Tobler and Stuart Grundy in 1983. What's music for? Music like that is like dialogue, a discussion among people, and it's very realistic and visual, and has a lot of power because it comes from real experiences, thoughts, and problems. And Woody was one of the great communicators in that way. The simple man with the guitar sang a lot of heavy things, and that has a lot of power as music. Whether you're in the Dust Bowl or out of it, you can feel that stuff. And it carries a lot of weight. I always liked playing those songs. The words are great, the melodies are traditional, and they come back at you all the time. This is The Ballad of Tricky Fred, a non-LP song released as a single in early 1971. It's a true Warner Brothers co-production produced by Lenny Waronker and John Pilla, 
with Cooter on sly guitar and Little Feet's Richie Hayward on drums. The horns, arranged by Jerry Jumonville, actually give the song a funky Little Feet vibe. As Arlo's biographer Hank Reinecke would note, Propelled by horns and Ry Cooter's funky lead guitar, the single starts off with a bang, Guthrie warning, Woo mama, there's a gun at your back. But this was one of the rare occasions when Guthrie's lyric was totally subservient to the rollicking music. The listener never really learns what was going down when blackjack-dealing Tricky Fred is brought down by police brandishing tear gas and bully clubs. Undeservedly, the song didn't get much attention. It never even appeared on a regular Arlo Guthrie album. In March, Guthrie embarked on the first half of an extensive cross-country tour. He was backed by a country bay rock band called Swampwater. Swampwater's piano player was none other than Jim Dickinson, who at the time was on the verge of entering the Cooter realm as a producer and pianist. The band had also played with rising star Linda Ronstadt the previous fall. The first leg of the tour ended in April. Half a year later, Cooter, still promoting his first solo album, was on board. He was to open for Arlo and also assist on mandolin. Jim Dickinson returned on piano. He wrote in his memoirs that they were supposed to travel like hippies in a van, but he didn't see that working. The van was too crowded. Johnny C. and I volunteered to ride in the equipment rent-a-truck. The truck lunged down the highway, accelerating up to 45 miles per hour and then shutting off. When we arrived at the gig, Arlo, Cooter, Pilla, and Jimbert were faking it with half the equipment and PA. We finished the gig and retreated to Troy, New York, where we had motel reservations. After that, they abandoned the Vigoli van. They spent the next six weeks playing up and down the East Coast before moving on to California and finally Texas. The tour was quite a success, though some music critics complained that Arlo's extended monologues dealt almost exclusively with dope. The song is kind of a weird song, you know. Guy played it in Philadelphia, got thrown off the air for playing it. It's not everybody's song, you know. Because <laughs> I was thinking about it one time. I mean, I was thinking about, here's, imagine, just turn that down. Imagine like an average guy. Your average kind of weirdo freak. Going over to Europe. Lots of chicks. Lots of dope. Says, hey man. I ain't gonna bring one of these chicks back, but maybe I'll score me a little dope and haul it back, you know. Hank Rainick wrote. The surviving audience tape of this concert confirms that, at times, Arlo's druggy monologues would not have been out of place in a vintage Cheech and Chong routine. Musically, his shows were still demonstrating a strong country and western flavor, with Wright Cooter's superb mandolin playing bringing a tasteful bluegrass sensibility to the proceedings. But Arlo was also beginning to slot his program with material that would be featured on the upcoming reprise album due out in early summer of 1972. This is a tune from our next hit album, is the way that Arlo introduced Tampa to his moody days are short. A lovely original that his friend Hoyt Axton would later cover on his own album, less than the song.
In his memoirs, Jim Dickinson also tells one of the rare drug stories involving Ry Cooter. For those of you unfamiliar with the drugs of the hippie era, in the early 1970s, Qualudes were one of the most commonly prescribed tranquilizers in the United States. They became a recreational drug because of their euphoric effects, but were banned in the 1980s. Dickinson. We worked our way westward. Our tour manager, whom we lovingly referred to as Loose Bruce, had two solutions to any problem. If it couldn't be fixed with duct tape, he had a gallon-sized bottle of Qualudes. Cooter, otherwise drug-free, didn't count Qualudes as drugs. Gimmer and I saved our doled-out Kias and gave them to Rye. One night in Austin at the Armadillo World Headquarters Auditorium Ballroom, Rye took a few too many. Thank God we played the show sitting down. I doubt he could have stood. He played up to six solo verses instead of one in a very loose, freewheeling set. After that, no more cues for Mr. Cooter. He told me later he was hallucinating watching a railroad train plow through the venue. It was a great show, the run's highlight. On a more sober note, Cooter later reflected on the experience of being on tour with Arlo Guthrie. It's a struggle on these short tours to make enough money to survive. Expenses will just heat you up. Planes, rent-a-cars, hotel rooms. I toured with Arlo Guthrie once for five weeks. I can't stay fresh that long. You get mechanical after a while. So I just go out on a lot of these shorter tours. Arlo goes out twice a year and makes just a barrel of money. Arlo's got his act down pat, so getting mechanical doesn't matter to him. The early summer of 1972 saw the release of Arlo's next studio album. Entitled Hobo's Lullaby, it featured his only top 40 hit, a cover of Steve Goodman's City of New Orleans. An impressive number of studio musicians contributed to the sessions, including many old friends such as Chris Etheridge, Jim Keltner, Clarence White, Jim Dickinson, Hoyt Axton, and Linda Ronstadt. Ry Cooter played on five of the 11 songs. First up is Anytime, a Herbert Lawson standard that Arlo was introduced to by his friend Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Elliott's soulful reading of Woody Guthrie's 1913 massacre at the 1970 Hollywood Bowl concert had inspired him to record the haunting ballad. Lightning Bar Blues was one of two songs on the album written by Arlo's friend Hoyt Axton, again with Cooter on acoustic bottleneck guitar. Shackles and Chains had already been released as the B-side to the Ballad of Tricky Fred. It had first been recorded live during the spring leg of Arlo's 1971 tour, but nobody liked that version, so it was later reworked in the studio. Arlo was quite skeptical about it. He said, I didn't really think that it should be on the album, 
but everybody else did. I still don't know if I like it too much. The song is very country. It's the only one on the album with Cooter on mandolin. While I'm sleeping in shackles and chains Hobo's Lullaby was a surprise hit of 1972. It became one of the most successful Warner Reprise albums of all time. Critics praised it with rare unanimity. Ira Mayer, writing for the New York Times, said, The air of casualness at Arlo Guthrie's recent performance has been transposed on this album into a friendliness which begs you to just sit down and join in. It is not a simple record, yet there is a folksy quality to it that remains constant. Nothing sounds rehearsed but everything comes off solidly and well-structured. On February 5, 1973, a Warner Brothers newsletter reported the following. Arlo Guthrie has finished recording all the tracks for his next album with the able assistance of musicians Ry Cooter, Jim Keltner, Jesse Edwin Davis, Gene Parsons, Grady Martin, George Bohannon, Lee Sklar, and Richie Hayward. Once again, Guthrie had managed to enlist the top of Warner's session pool. The long list also included John Pilla, who played rhythm guitar and bass and again teamed up with Lenny Waronker as producer. Last of the Brooklyn Cowboys was recorded in Bakersfield and at the Warner Brothers studio in North Hollywood. The studio had recently been equipped with a 24-track capability. No less than three engineers, among them Cooter regular Lee Hirschberg, oversaw production. About his intentions for the album, Marlowe said, We were going for a feel here. It wasn't specific to an era, exactly, but I think the cover says it too. We were going for that, going for a mythical place somewhere that included all these things on the record. By 1973, we were beginning to see the end of the folk boom and the beginning of disco. I think we began to realize that we weren't looking for radio play and frankly, dealing with even the records we'd made up to that point, we weren't getting any either. So we just concentrated on making records that we loved listening to. Cooter played on five songs with the Dylan cover Gates of Eden clearly the highlight. Dylan wrote the eloquent ballad in 1964, but never included it on one of his studio albums. The song is pure, dark poetry, full of symbols and metaphors borrowed from the Bible as well as the writings of the beatniks. Guthrie's voice is firmer and more determined than usual. The interplay between Cooter's acoustic bottleneck and Clarence White's electric guitar is absolutely sublime. Of war and peace, the truth just twists, it's curfew, goal it flies. Upon four-legged forest clouds, the cowboy angel rides. With his candle lit into the sun, though its glow is waxed in black. From modern poetry to an Irish traditional, The Sailor's Bonnet is the third tune of a famous medley from the early 20th century. Its first recordings were so influential that it is still played in Irish sessions today. Cooter plays slide guitar and Arlo plays banjo, with Kevin Burke on fill.
The majority of critics gave Last of the Brooklyn Cowboys a thumbs up. Many liked the mix of original compositions, fiddle pieces, ragtime piano solos, and old folk songs. Some even liked the album almost against their own will. Harvey Andrews wrote in the British Folk Review, Good God, such a diverse hodgepodge of material has never before come my way in one album. I cannot for the life of me explain why I enjoyed it so much. Arlo has a way of playing on weaknesses. But the album was not a commercial success. Arlo Guthrie's hit-making days were over by 1973. This is Bling Blang from Arlo's self-titled seventh album, released in the spring of 1974. The song is one of only two on the album that features Cooter. It is the unspectacular end of a fruitful collaboration. For Arlo Guthrie, the familiar circle of musicians was once again in place, but somehow the magic had faded. The album was not a critical or popular success. Some reviews were even quite harsh. Many, even Arlo himself, thought the record was overproduced. And so the five-year period of regular Cooter Guthrie collaborations came to a rather sad end. Nearly four decades later, there was a near reunion on stage at Woody Guthrie's 100th birthday celebration. At the high-profile Woody Guthrie Centennial Celebration Concert at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. in October 2012, Ry Cooter performed the song Deporty with Annie DiFranco and Dan Geller. Arlo was also scheduled to perform, but tragically his wife died that morning. So it would be another six years before the two performed at least at the same festival in the summer of 2018, the Vancouver Island Music Festival. Rye and Arlo played on different nights, but let's hope they had a chance to shake hands and toast their time together. And that brings us to the end of this bonus episode of the Rye Cooter Story. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>